last letter that our Lord Jesus Christ wrote to the seven churches in Revelation. There's something that's very um, moving, as we have said, very, very gripping about having these letters, these seven epistles that were written after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into glory to sit at the Father's right hand. Because here we, we see his ministry from there. We have lots of that example of his ministry on earth, which is what we need. But God has been pleased to give us his ministry from glory. And we see how intimately he is involved with us. He is with us, just like he is with these seven churches. And we see how concerned he is. We see his counsel. And of course, these words are written for us. And Jesus is still just as involved in the every congregation as he was with these congregations. So these letters should be very precious to us as God's people. Now that we have come to the last of them, some of you may be wondering whether I'm going to continue in Revelation because I told you that I was not decided about that when we started the seven churches. That was all I was going to really commit to do. And uh, I told you that uh, I was thinking about going on. Well, I'm going to go on. (laughs) There is so much of our Savior and His glory in this book that in his present reign at the Father's right hand. Again, it is a unique book that talks about that present reign and what's going on with him now in glory. That, um, yeah, I want to I go at least until chapter 12, I think. <laughs> I think. It's, it's an intimidating book, but um, I want to go at least to, to chapter 12. And uh, Okay, well, let's get on with, our, with today's topic, Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea. In this last of the seven letters, his deep concern for churches and people that are lukewarm is expressed. And this is a problem that is not rare. And so all through the ages, before Jesus came and after he came, there were lukewarm churches, synagogues, whatever you want to call them, assemblies, And his concern for this is expressed. We see in him both disgust and tenderness mingled together. Extreme disgust and extreme tenderness mingled together. What a powerful impact this has on anyone in whom God's Spirit is at work. If God's Spirit is working in you, and you see his extreme disgust and his extreme tenderness of the Lord of glory, you don't just kind of walk away from it. It, it, it's, it, it impacts you. It's, it's very striking. Who can be indifferent to what is said in this letter to Laodicea? It's addressing the problem of indifference. Who can be indifferent? when our Lord Jesus addresses us with these words. Let's, let's read it. Let me go ahead and read it to you. It's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. This is God's holy and infallible word. Again, Revelation three fourteen is where we begin. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, 
These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word that his spirit may work in us as those who have heard it and will now hear it expounded. Laodicea was a very comfortable place to live, especially for Christians in the first century. There weren't many places that were comfortable to live for, Christ, for Christians to live in the first century, but Laodicea was one that was. We whine a lot here in Canada, and indeed lamentation is appropriate when we see our government progressively turning away from God, but we really have it quite good here. We're very comfortable, just like the churches the church in Laodicea. Here was the situation. Here was their situation. Laodicea was a very wealthy place. They were a health center. They had hot springs that had uh, very healing kind of waters. They were natural, you know, hot springs. Uh, people would come from around to, to use them. They were specialists in uh, treating eye diseases. And they had a medical center there, and they had um, this uh, eye salve that was manufactured there with some of the minerals and things that they had around that was very effective. They had a wool industry that was very profitable. It was black wool that was prized. It was very, very soft. Rome had established a circuit court there for the region around them, so they had you know, lawyers and judges and all that sort of thing. But perhaps the most lucrative thing of all was that they were successful bankers. So there was a lot of wealth here. Very much like Switzerland, they were able to stay out of wars. When you have a war and there's elite people on both sides that have money in uh, Switzerland or in, um, uh, in Laodicea, then they don't want to go and, and blow it up or, or bring it into the war. And so they, they, they're just, they're always neutral. Everybody wants to, both sides want to preserve, the leaders on both sides want to, want to preserve that place and they don't try to force them into some particular government or, or that kind of a thing. 
And uh, that's kind of the situation. So this, this had come about over time. From earlier days, they realized that their city was not defensible because they were in a valley. They didn't have the big mountains with the hill, the mountain with the hill on the sides like some of the places we saw did. They didn't have uh, some of the natural advantages. And one of the worst things is they didn't have their own water supply. And in that day, if you were under siege and you didn't have a water supply in your city, you were in a bad shape. Now, they did have a water supply, but it was from an aqueduct. And it was, you know, five miles away. So if the enemy comes, he just knocks down the aqueduct and you've got no water. And uh, so they knew that they were very vulnerable. And so over the years, instead of becoming warriors, they became diplomats. And they learned how to negotiate with everyone around them and, and uh, very, very, very successfully so that they got along with all sides. They were adept at diplomacy instead of warfare. They got on well with each other as well. This whole way of living got into their, their whole society because they didn't really stand for anything except peace and prosperity. That was the more important thing, that we have peace and prosperity. It doesn't really matter what anybody believes that much. You know, everybody can just kind of do their own thing and it'll be fine. There was a huge population of Jews here, interestingly. Records show, there's some interesting records that, that demonstrate this, that they had something like 7,500 Jews at the time of uh, the writing here. And these Jews were given tax exemption and encouraged to live here, likely because of their banking skills, but they were the kind of Jews that were not zealous for their faith. I mean, they freely practiced and were allowed to freely practice their rituals, no one bothering them, but they didn't really care that much about, you know, the kingdom of God and that kind of thing. They were not the kind, in other words, that would persecute Christians or would contend with the Romans and be bitter about the Romans' leadership or that kind of thing. They were the kind that would just, like, negotiate and, and get along with everybody. They'd rather do business with them than to quarrel about what's right and wrong. And the Romans who lived here were not the kind to persecute either Christians or Jews. They were focused on living the good life also, instead of upholding Roman ideology or, or that kind of a thing. So everybody just lived and let live, just get along. That was the environment. So they were, by all human standards, a secure and self-sufficient people. Now, though we are told that they too suffered, we are told that they suffered from earthquakes, like some of the places we've seen in this area, in you know, Turkey, more or less. And uh, they had the big one that we saw destroyed a couple of the other uh, cities where the churches were in um, AD 17. Like Philadelphia and Sardis, Rome helped them to rebuild. But when they had another earthquake that struck in AD 60, they let Rome know that, hey, we're okay, we don't need any help, we can, we can rebuild. They had so much wealth that they just, oh, let's build the city back, you know, the part that fell down or whatever, and that's what they did. The Roman historian Tacitus says, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of their own resources and with no help from us. So this is, this is the kind of place it was. It was sufficient, it was self-sufficient, like Canada, 
especially Canada a few years back before the leftists began to impose their views by force and allow no dissent, it was a very comfortable place to live. And really, this is still a pretty comfortable place to live too, but there is increasingly the enforcement of you can't dissent from the, from the public views. That's, we've seen that rise, haven't we? And, you know, it's, it's, we, we, don't, we don't like that, of course. But uh, they didn't have that problem. You could, you know, just, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Kind of the way it used to be here. But now let's look at what Jesus had to say in his letter to this church. First, we have his self-description that he usually begins with as it pertains to this place. Every time he identifies himself, this is who I am writing to you. And he gives a kind of a description that's related to their situation. It's interesting that this time he doesn't draw from the attributes identified in chapter 1. He does that the other times, not exactly sure why, but he calls himself the Amen. See that in verse 14. That's from the Hebrew word. It's almost the same, Amin. And uh, it's a word that is pretty much in all different languages coming out from the Bible. People know the word. If, you know, anybody that's a Christian would have a word kind of like Amen in their language that they use. And the word means, it speaks of truth and faithfulness. You can see how truth and faithfulness are kind of the same thing. In other words, you're true. You faithfully do what you say you'll do. You're true to yourself. You, you're faithful in, in things. When you say amen in worship, it's like saying, you know, so true. Or, or so it is. Or may it be so. Faithfully so. You know, this kind of thing. Jesus actually expounds this word here as it relates to himself, this word amen, as he uses it in, in the words that follow, in the words that follow. He says, these things, okay, talking about himself, says the amen, the faithful and true witness. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate, what did he say? That he came into the world to bear witness to the truth. He came to show us what is true, what is true about God. And he himself is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Son of God who came to make known the Father. He is the divine Logos. By his life and by the cross, he shows us the Father's wisdom, power, holiness, justice, mercy, grace, faithfulness, Love, goodness, wrath, judgment. Think about how, how much those things are shown by Christ in his life and in the work that he did for our salvation, especially the work that he did on the cross. We see all those things to a heightened extent that we could not see them apart from that revelation. So he says, I, Jesus Christ, writing to you, the church in Laodicea, and the true and faithful witness. He also calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. The word translated beginning here is not passive, but active. In other words, he is the one who began us. I, he's saying, I am the one who began you. I'm the one that started you. I'm the one that created you. This is certainly true as far as our creation that happened at the beginning of the world, that he did at the beginning of the world. 
But I believe that here it refers to him as the beginning of the kingdom of righteousness that he came to establish on the earth. There was not a kingdom of righteousness because man had sinned and, and rebelled against God. And Jesus came and began the kingdom of righteousness. He started it. Now, of course, God had already, the triune God had already started it from the Old Testament. But it, Jesus was the first one to really establish that kingdom, to be in that kingdom. And the world was waiting for him to come and establish it. The Old Testament was waiting for him. In the New Testament, we have Christ given. They had Christ promised, we have Christ given. So he is the founder, in other words. He's the originator of it, the beginning of the creation of God and the beginning of the new creation of God. A people created as God's people in righteousness and holiness. That is, he is the originator of that. And what is, then this kingdom, what is it that he began? What could we call it? We could call it a kingdom of truth and faithfulness. A kingdom whose subjects live in the reality, in the truth of God and of all that he is. It is a kingdom taken out of this world filled with deception and lies that ignores God and denies God and treats God as irrelevant. A kingdom taken out from that fallen world to dwell in truth and righteousness, to know who God is. Jesus establishes true, and true living with reference to God for his people to the true God who is holy and who judges sin and to whom we must be reconciled by the cross of Christ. He makes that one known. He makes the truth known. A God who punishes sin severely, but graciously receives all sinners who repent and believe on Jesus. A God that is very dangerous to ignore and that is most wonderful to be reconciled to and to serve by grace. Jesus is the Amen. Jesus is the true and faithful witness. He establishes a people who live in reality and the truth. Now, in his charge to the church in Laodicea, the true and faithful witness addresses the problem of indifference to God. Here is the address that causes all honest souls to reflect. An honest soul is one that God's Spirit has begun to open to the truth. <laughs> That's what, what I mean by that. Okay, so again, the, the true and faithful witness addresses the problem of indifference to God. He charges them with being lukewarm. They are toward God like the Laodiceans were toward every kind of ideology. Not a big deal. It's nothing to make a fuss about. Doesn't matter that much, as long as we all get along. They're not cold toward God, hating God, bitterly denying Him, accusing Him, opposing Him. They're they're fine, fine. You know, God, God's okay. You can go after Him the Jewish way or the Roman way or you know whatever. It's not a big deal. They're neither hot toward him, neither are they hot toward him. They are not filled with love and adoration of him, of gratitude and devotion. 
They have no readiness to suffer for him, to sacrifice, or no concern to advance his kingdom. It doesn't really matter whether the kingdom advances or not, as long as we can live peaceably. Theirs is a quiet, comfortable faith, a private faith, a convenient faith that is not allowed to get in the way of normal living. You can go to church, say your prayers, it's all nice, but there's no need to deny yourself or take up your cross, follow Christ, to stand up for anything. Being lukewarm is a violation of the third commandment. The commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. To take something in vain is to count it as of little matter, of little importance. It's not weighty. It's just a, it's not, not, not a big deal. God's name is, uh, is what he reveals about himself. Whatever he reveals about himself is God's name. And so you take what God has revealed about himself, his name, and say, eh, yeah, it's nice. It's, it's, not, it's not a huge deal. Jesus expresses utter contempt for the behavior of indifference toward God. He is a true and faithful witness. He gets it right. <laughs> he knows what's right, what's good, what's bad, and he has utter contempt for this kind of behavior. He says that being lukewarm is worse than being cold. He says, I, I could wish, verse 15, you were hot, cold or hot. Think about it. It's more dishonoring to God, isn't it, to be lukewarm than it is to be either cold or hot. It's more dishonoring to God to profess him, to profess that he's God, he's your God, and then to live as if him being your God doesn't really make any difference. You know, oh yeah, it's nice. You have no hunger for his word. You have no delight in him. You have no joy in his gifts, no observance of his day, no laying down of your life for, for your wife, no not standing for the truth. Jesus is saying, it'd be better to be against God than to say you're for him and be like that. As if it's nothing to be for God, is it nothing to have God as your God. The true witness who is devoted to revealing the truth about God and his glory sees you revealing what is false, if that's what you do. He'd rather that you didn't associate with him at all. That you said, I hate God. And you know, when, when they came to crucify him, to Christ, it was obvious that they, they hated him. But the people that pretended to be his friend and then didn't really serve him, like they were saying, you know, it, it's not a big deal to have him as my friend. You know, you'd rather we were hot or cold. Jesus is saying it's better to be against God than to be like that. The true and faithful witness is not at all indifferent about you being indifferent. In verse, 15, in verse 16, he says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We talked about a lot when we were in the Song of Solomon how Jesus loves to taste good fruit. We see that in places like John 15 as well, that you know, he, he delights that we bring forth much fruit. The Father delights in it. Jesus delights in it. He praises his people. He comes to his garden where his people are growing and bearing fruit, and he, he tastes of their fruit and smells the, 
the smells of the spices and things that are growing there. And he takes delight in it because it's his work in us growing. He plants the garden. He causes it to grow. It's all by his grace. And he, he takes great pleasure in that. But you take a piece of fruit in that garden. It's in the garden. It's in his garden. It says, I, I belong to him. I'm baptized and all this. And, and take a bite of this fruit and it's, it's rotten. Oh, it's, it's, it's reprehensible. I, I'd rather you were, you were outside there opposing me rather than in here as, as rotten fruit. And it tastes, it, it tastes deplorable. It's not palatable. Such behavior is so disgusting that the, the New King James translates it well. He, he vomits, vomits us out of his mouth. It's so displeasing and distasteful to him. He will have none of you if you're like that. What makes the lukewarm Christian especially disgusting is the way that he thinks he is doing quite well. I touched on this a little bit today when we were at the Lord's table and a little bit even in the morning sermon. But there are no tears about his indifference to God. It all seems quite fine to him. He's so full of other things that he doesn't even notice his pitiful relationship with God. He can't see it in its true wretchedness. But Jesus is seeking to make it known to all lukewarm Christians that this is wretched. You say, well, how can you call them Christians? Well, they're Christians because that's what they profess to be. Everybody that is baptized and professes to be a Christian, part of the church, all that kind of thing, we call a Christian. God does that all the way through the Old Testament. He talks to his people when they're doing all kinds of deplorable things that show that they're not true believers. But he still calls them my people. And they're all the worse for being his people. Look at the reason that Jesus gives for vomiting the lukewarm Christians out of his mouth. Verse 17. This is how he puts it. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Everything is good. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There is smugness here. What smugness? What wretched smugness? I'm all right. Everything's good with me. Even though I'm indifferent to God, even though my relationship with Him is quite insignificant to me, I'm fine the way I am. It's all, all good. I live a comfortable life. I live a good life. I treat, treat other people well. I don't need anything more. I've got everything I want. got everything. I'm content. Everything's good. Little religion, moderation, I like that too. It's a good thing. Have, have it all, you know. But the true and faithful witness gives the true account. What does he say about him? It's very bold what he says. Like I said, he, he's strong here. I mean, this is, this is not polite. He says, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what the true and faithful witness, who sees how far off this kind of way is to God. That's what he says. He is not irritated that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Just that that's so about them. He's irritated that they do not see that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He is pleased with those who see that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 
and come to him for salvation. It's when they don't care that he finds us nauseating. You see the difference. But now we come to something that ought to warm up every lukewarm heart. Remember I said there was incredible like, a, a severity here, but there's also incredible tenderness here from our Lord. See our Savior's eagerness to help even Luke, the lukewarm who disgust Him the most. He wants to help them. Even though we may be indifferent to Him, He is not indifferent to us. That's what I said in the previous point. Same thing here. He wants to restore us. He counsels the lukewarm Christian to buy what we need from Him. He replaces what we have that is actually of very little value that we esteem highly. He replaces that with what has true value. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now he's saying basically, you think you're rich? Buy gold from me and you will find true riches that no one can take away from you and that will never disappoint. The gold that you have will become dust. It will be worthless. The gold that I give you is gold that is refined. He says, you think you're well clothed? He says, no, you're not. <laughs> You've got all kinds of shame and you don't even know about it. You know, your shame is evident to me. All of the beautiful clothing that you wear to cover it up, all the facades, all the things that you put on, you're naked, but the clothes that I give you, the white garments that I give you, my righteousness given to you, that's the clothing that you need. I have clothing that will cover your sin and guilt, the garments of righteousness that I purchased on the cross. Your cover-up is failing, and you don't even know it. Buy my garments, and you will be covered. You know, that's one of the things that will be so difficult if we have not put on the garments that Christ bought for us on the day of judgment because it's all going to be exposed we don't even see it ourselves I'm sure that if you're a Christian you've had times when when you saw sin in your life and it was just disgusting and you'd lived with it for a long time and you didn't even see it it was disgusting and he opened your eyes and it's like whoa this is I, I'm worse than I think I am and, you know, that happens to us as Christians. And uh, that's what it's going to be like on the day of judgment for everybody. It's all going to be ugh, just exposed. You know, the, the, you don't love God who made you. It's, it's going to be ugly. He says, you get, get these clothes. You don't have good clothes. And see, those are the things that they specialize, isn't it? They, they're gold, they're clothes, right? Oh, I'm well, I'm well taken care of. I'm covered. And he says, you think you can see? Not at all. You're missing out on the true beauty and glory that you could look upon with unending delight. The things that you are looking at are going to get dull and old. And, but the beauty that I give you that you can see when I open your eyes is a beauty that you'll never, from which you'll never tire. By my eye salve from me, and you will see great and glorious things that will satisfy you forever. He says, you don't realize 
you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, and I've got, I've got what you need. But how do you go about buying these things? How do you get this gold, these clothes, and this eye salve? Like, how do you, how do you pay for this stuff? You buy it, as he says. It's the same kind of thing he says in Isaiah 55, without money and without price. What is what he t- Well, then how do you buy it? You buy it by accepting the terms of the covenant. If you're making a big purchase, you go and you, you know, get documents and you settle terms and you, you agree to pay this much for this house or whatever it is that you're buying. Get your mortgage all lined up, all this kind of thing. He doesn't want your money. He calls you to come and have him as your God. That's the terms of the covenant. Your God, I will be your God, you will be my people. Your God who saves you through his son. He calls you to rely on his son to fill you with the true riches. To cover you with the garments that actually cover your shame. And to anoint your eyes so that you can see the beauty and glory of God. And the glory of his kingdom. And the glory of his ways. Jesus is saying that what you have is worthless compared to what he has to give you. I counsel you. Those are kind words, aren't they? You know, I'm, I'm... helping I'm counseling you to buy this from me get it from me he says Jesus does not stop with that he extends even to the the lukewarm a delightful invitation extending an invitation how do you do that well he reprimands reprimands us relentlessly because he loves us look at what he says in verse 19 As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. As the true and faithful witness, his goal is to bring new life in the truth to us. Okay, to to bring that new life to us. He urges us to be zealous where we were once indifferent. It is so inappropriate and so misguided to be indifferent to God and his salvation. Be zealous, he says, repent. That is, turn away from your lukewarm path. Does his rebuke reach you? Do you hear? Do you hear his rebuke? That is his love and mercy to you. If you don't hear it, then you're not getting the love and mercy of Christ. You've blocked yourself off to it. Be zealous and repent. Don't shake it off. Don't harden your heart. Don't destroy your soul with your deceitful lusts. That's what it's so easy to do. You, lusts destroy your soul. You feed on these other things. You feed and feed and feed on the things that can never satisfy. And your back is turned to God Almighty where the true riches are. Be zealous and repent. See how he earnestly calls us to open to him. Verse 20 is his gracious invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. How does he knock? By calling with his word and spirit. He uses his word and sends out his word into the world and it speaks to the, the nations. Okay, he calls us as individuals, pleading through his gospel, a relentless knock, 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 knock. We open, how do we open? 
when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, when we accept his advances and follow him. It's like I've talked to you before. It's like a, it's like a proposal of engagement. You accept the terms of the covenant. You come and say, yes, I will be your bride. Yes, I will live in your house forever. Yes, I will serve you and I will, I will be devoted. The vows that we make when we enter into covenant with him. He promises that we will dine with him. Sumptuous fare. Bread that will truly satisfy. Water and wine that will truly quench, quench our thirst and give us joy that is everlasting. Instead of feasting at the world's table, we will feast at his table as our bridegroom. Notice the free offer of the gospel here. What does it say? If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in. The qualifications that you need to be Christ's are not riches. We amass so much worthless stuff. But that you want the true riches. That's the qualification that He came to provide. You want Him. You want what He brings. That's the qualification. Not fine clothing. We can put on quite a show for people and try to look impressive. But that you want the garment that He provides that takes away, that covers your shame. Not the beauty of this world, but let Him open your eyes to see the beauty of His glory and of His Father from all eternity. You'll see the beauty of the world better when you see that too. Because the world is beautiful, but it's beautiful as that which God made. He is eager to give it all to you if you will merely come to receive it. In verse 21, he promises that all who overcome, that is all who see that God matters and act accordingly, that's how you overcome in this case, pursuing Him in Christ, pursuing God in Christ, all who do that, he says, will reign with Him. All these will reign with Him, the Amen, the true and faithful one, the one who began life in truth, in place of life in falsehood and lies. You get to be with the one who reigns in truth rather than the one who reigns in falsehood. See, when we fell, we were wed to the one who reigns in falsehood, the devil. And when we repent and come back to Christ, our Redeemer, we reign with Him who reigns forever and tramples Him who reigns falsely in lies. He says he will, we will reign with Him on His throne. To Him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Being on the throne with Him means that we are in harmony with Him and His Father. And if that is so, we are in harmony with everything. Not the insipid, insipid harmony of Laodicea that is rooted in indifference. That's the kind of harmony you can have. You're indifferent to everything. Get along with everything. Yeah, great. That's not what he's looking for. But the harmony that comes when everything is in its proper place, exalting God Almighty. That's the kind of harmony that we're talking about. Think of it. He wants us up there with him, up there where he is. Why? Because he loves us. And because he knows how wonderful it will be for us to be up there beholding the glory that he had with the Father from before the foundation of the world and participating in that glory, reigning with him as his people under God is those who are made 
for God in God's image. He loves us and he knows how wonderful it will be for us to be there with him. See how he urges us all again to hear what the Spirit says. Verse 22, as he's ended each of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These letters are written for all of us. They're written to these particular churches, but they're written for the benefit of all of us, anyone that has ears to hear. He means then for us to respond to them appropriately. What a gracious, loving Savior He is. He not only provides what we need despite its great cost to Him, He also urges us to receive it. He doesn't just provide it and say, there. He provides it and He says, come, come, I counsel you. Buy this. Enter into covenant with me. Receive this. Come and, come and, and feed. Come and sup with me. I knock at the door. Open the door to me. And I will come in and I will, I will sup with you. It's not enough to turn. If that's not enough to turn you from indifference. And you're very hardened indeed. Please stand and let's call in and leave the blessing of this uh, gracious Savior, people of God. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Uh, please be seated and I'll take any questions. Just take a few minutes if you have any.